You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hi, folks, and welcome to episode 62 of the Let's Talk Photography podcast. I'm your host, Bart Bouchotts. This is a solo show, so just little old me to listen to this time. Um, but I have to say, I had a lot of fun creating the show notes for this uh, episode, uh, which you will find at let's-talk.ie. Um, I'm hoping this is the kind of episode that people will be able to refer back to, particularly indeed the show notes, as sort of a, a quick reference to just remember the order in which things happened. So what is my topic? Well, perhaps somewhat bravely... I've decided to give you a potted history of recording light. In other words, the history of effectively what became the sensor in our digital cameras. But of course, it didn't start off as a sensor. It spent most of its time as a chemistry experiment, really. So uh, let's get uh, stuck in. Now, traditionally, if you look up your average encyclopedia or whatever, and you, you know asked the question, when was photography invented? The answer is 1839, when Louis Daguerre in Paris announced the invention of the humbly and modestly named daguerreotype, which is, well, it's a photograph. It's a method for making photographs, a reliable, commercially viable method for making photographs. But photography didn't start in 1839. It wasn't the case that in 1838 there was no photography, and then in 1839, hey presto, we have photography. No, it was much, much, much more of a gradual process. There was no instantaneous eureka moment, it was a slow trudge. And it also wasn't like the genius Daguerre working by his lonesome. Um, There were in fact many people working in parallel on the same problem, because photography was effectively one of those inventions that was waiting to happen. The question wasn't really if someone would invent a way of capturing and recording light. The question was how, who, where, when, but not if. So if we uh, start back on the timeline, um, the you know, the first part of the camera is the, the ability to project an image onto something. And that has literally been around for thousands of years. So... That bit didn't really take much, you know, that that wasn't the bit that people found hard in the run-up to 1839. The bit that was hard was how to actually record that projected image once you had it projected onto your flat surface. How do we capture this and make it permanent? And that is really the art of photography. So, you know, the camera obscura solved the, the, the projection part ages and ages ago. It's the capture part, it's the hard part. So that's what this is all about. And ultimately, to get to Daguerre, basically there's three problems to be solved. You need to find some sort of chemical reaction that's affected by light intensity, i.e. the chemistry has to vary based on how much light hits a particular part of it. So you coat the surface in some sort of chemical, light hits it, where lots of light hits it, the chemical does one thing, and where a little bit of light hits it, the chemical does something else, and where something in between hits it, the chemical does something in between. Gradiated response to light. You then have to have some way of turning this chemistry into something that the human eye can see. 
which we would call development. You have to develop the image you capture. And then, very, very importantly, you have to find a way of applying the brakes. Because the real world is chock-a-block full of light. So if your chemical solution that has captured your image by, you know, recording the variations in light intensity, well, to view your final image, you're going to be shining more light on it. So if you haven't somehow found a way of applying the brakes, you're going to ruin your image by looking at your image, which makes your image pretty useless. Imagine a photograph you can only see in the dark. You know, useless. Uh, and uh, the word we would develop, if they excuse the pun, for that final part of the process is uh, we need to discover some kind of fixer. Okay, so let's look at this history of finding those light-sensitive chemicals. Uh, we can actually go all the way back to 1717, believe it or not. Um, Johann Heinrich Schulz was making temporary images by placing stencils over bottles containing a mixture of chalk, which is CaCO3, and silver nitrate, which is AgNO3, in nitric acid, HnO3. Um, now, silver nitrate is interesting that we've immediately got it in there because silver is going to play a really big role in the story of photography. Um, silver, silver nitrate, indeed, as well. Now... He had this bottle with this chemical in it, and if he put a stencil over the bottle, then he could see that the bits of the bottle where the light was hitting were cha- were turning, you know, were visibly changing appearance compared to the bits of the bottle where the stencil wasn't covering it. But of course, the image was completely fleeting; it was literally in liquid, and also there was no concept of a fix or anything. So he had found one of the three things we need to. To, to chemically capture an image, he'd found a chemical reaction which was sensitive to light, but he had no way of of making it permanent in any way. But the key thing is he stumbled onto the fact that, or stumbled on seems a bit pejorative, he discovered that salts of silver, or so-called silver halides, are photoreactive. Their chemistry is altered by light, and that is the seed that will blossom into the daguerreotype and indeed, you know, our photography right into the 20th century. The next person who wanders into into our story, it wanders in around about 1800. So the best part of a century has gone since uh, Johann Heinrich Schultz discovered interesting chemistry around uh, silver nitrate. Uh, the next person who walks into the scene is a chap called Thomas Wedgwood, son of very famous English industrialist Josiah Wedgwood of uh, pottery-making fame. And Wedgwood went from bottles of stuff to coating a surface in photoreactive chemicals. And he also immediately had the idea of using a camera obscura to project an image onto his coated photographic surface. So he really was building a camera here. Uh, Now... His chemistry was pretty crude, so the only thing he was able to actually capture was a silhouette. He didn't have enough radiation in his process. He also didn't have any sort of a concept of a fixer, so he had no way to make his images permanent. So what he basically managed to do was to make a camera which could briefly, fleetingly capture a silhouette. 1800, though, not bad going. Now, the next chap, things really start to speed up now. So, 1717 to 1800 is our first jump. And the next jump, you know, going much less far, just a decade and a half. 1816 
in France, Joseph Nieps is uh, working in similar stuff, actually, to Wedgwood. He's using paper coated with silver chloride. So not silver nitrate, silver chloride, but it's still a silver halide. Um, and he is able to capture image with gradations between light and dark. Now, he also hasn't discovered a, uh, a fixer yet. He also hasn't found a way of making his images permanent. So he's moved things forward a bit. He's gone from silhouettes to actual proper gradated images. But again, shining light on them destroys them. So you, they're images that can't be viewed. So a photograph that's afraid of the light. And Yeps didn't give up. Um, but he did dramatically change course, which is an interesting diversion from where we end up, because actually it turns out that the silver halides were the right course to be on, but Nieps got very disillusioned with them because he couldn't find a fixer, because he couldn't find a way to make his images permanent. He became very disillusioned with the whole concept of the silver halides, and he went for a completely different process. Um, And it was one that worked. Um, He used something called bitumen of Judea, or Syrian asphalt. Now, in this case, the chemistry is different. So, If you expose bitumen of Judea to light, the bits that are hit by the light go hard, and the bits that aren't, don't. And the more light you hit, the harder they go. So if you smear a thin layer of this stuff over a surface, you expose that surface to light for a long time, and then you gently wash that surface with an acid, you will be left with the stuff where very little light hit washes off easily, and the stuff where lots of light hit doesn't wash off easily. And so you get an image. You capture an image. And it's by its nature fixed. Because as soon as you stop rubbing acid over it, it stops changing. And so you have a fixed image. And Nieps was able to do that. Um, but it's not a very light-sensitive process. So Nieps wasn't able to project... By 1822, anyway, he wasn't able to use it in a camera obscura. Basically, the best he could do was place some sort of stencil over his bitumen-coated stuff, expose it to light, and then reveal the shape of the stencil afterwards. So he's on the right track here, but he hasn't quite gotten there yet. Um, And also, this is very, very slow. But again, he doesn't stop. He keeps at it. Two years later, he uses this very, very slow method with his bitumen of Judea to capture what it was probably the first photograph in the world. Unfortunately, he managed to break it. Um, it was, quote-unquote, destroyed during later experiments. So, a little bit later than that, we're not exactly sure the date it was taken um, or created or made. Either way, either in 1826 or 1827... We are still over a decade before Daguerre, by the way. Nieps created a photograph which survives to this day. It is the oldest existing photograph that we have. We don't know, we don't even know what year it was taken, so shock horror, we don't know all that much detail about it. Um, It's a difficult image to look at. It's linked in the show notes uh, because... The exposure time was very, very long. Um, We don't have an exact record. There's no exif data in it. Um, Estimates vary between eight hours at the absolute low end 
up to possibly multiple days of exposure time. So all of the shadows have stretched and done weird things. So what he basically did was he pointed his camera out of the window of his apartment in Paris and let it expose for either many, many, many hours or multiple days. And then he used his acid to wash his plate and he had himself a permanent image. And given the fact that it still exists today and it was made in 1826 or 1827, I think he figured out the whole fixing thing pretty darn well. So there we go. If anyone ever asks you what year was the first photograph made, the answer is not exactly sure, either 1826 or 1827. It is absolutely not 1839. Now, to prove the point that there's lots of stuff happening at the same time here, so Nieps is working away in France. But at the other side of the Atlantic, in Brazil, Hercule Florence is also working away, and he is working with salts of silver. Um... And he was able to use them to make a permanent image. So he arguably really invented the modern photographic process as we know it. Salts of silver and a fixer. Unfortunately, he didn't actually publish his scientific work. He kept it to himself. So he wasn't actually contributing to science and he didn't help drive scientific knowledge forward. He was just tinkering about by himself. Now... He did make an image which survives to this day. And he made that image that survives in 1833. It's not a very exciting image. It's an image of some chemical flasks. Um, but um, he titled it Eprevu Number 2 Photographie. Now, number two is interesting because it implies there was another one. Did he succeed in making another one in like, you know, 1831 or something? Who knows? But it's kind of intriguing that the first known survive the first surviving image from Hercule Florence is titled Number Two. He also coined the word photographie. Now it's P H O T O G R A P H I E. So it's not photography, but it's not a million miles off. Again, parallels going on here. So meanwhile in England, a British toft called Henry Fox Talbot was also experimenting with salts of silver. Um, he was using silver chloride. In 1835, so two years later than Florence, um, Fox Talbot produced durable negative images on paper that he could then contact print to form a final positive image. So his process would give you an image that was in reverse colour, so he would then sandwich another photosensitive piece of paper with the original image, which was on sort of a waxed paper to make it semi-transparent, leave those out in the sun for many, many hours, and then he would create a reverse of a reverse, which is, of course, a positive. So first process produces a negative, and then you print it, you reproduce it again to negativize the negative to get your positive final image. Now, the interesting thing here is that because his process goes through a negative, he can actually make multiple final positive versions from one original negative. So he can take his camera somewhere, take a picture, and produce multiple prints. So that's actually quite close to where we end up with real photography, right? This is... We're, we're making real progress here. Now, because he's using waxed paper, it's not particularly transparent. So as well as it taking a long time to do the prints, you know, to turn the negative into a positive... You're also shining light through paper. So the fibres of the paper 
are going to put a limit on the amount of detail you can capture, particularly in the final image. So they're not the clearest photographs. They're also not the quickest photographs. So what Daguerre had been doing was actually more advanced in some ways. So in 1839 then, Daguerre finally reveals to the world his process. But of course, he's been working on it for a lot longer than that. In fact, he was uh, working with someone we've already heard of in this story. He was working with Nieps. Unfortunately, Nieps died in 1833. So Nieps stops adding more, you know, stops having an input into this. But Daguerre continued. And Daguerre didn't get sidetracked away from the silver halides into bitumen. Daguerre kept going with the silver halide idea. And he finished up in 1839 with a commercially viable basically very reproducible very robust very reliable process that he called the daguerreotype so how does it work well he starts off with a polished sheet of silver plated copper so you then make that silver plated copper light sensitive by going into a dark room and exposing the sheet, so holding it over some boiling iodine, so that you basically have iodine vapours hitting this polished sheet of silver-plated copper. So it doesn't matter what's behind the silver plate, right? What matters is that on the surface is silver. And you wouldn't want to use solid plates of silver because that would cost an arm and a leg. So the iodine vapours hit the silver and they produce silver iodide, which is another silver halide. So you then, without showing the plate to light. So you're in your dark room, you hold it over the boiling vat of iodine to sensitise the plate. You then put it in some sort of black bag, bring it to the camera, slot it into the camera, pop the lens cap off the camera, expose it for initially a few minutes, pop the lens cap back on, take your plate out back into its little black bag and back into the dark room you go. And you now have to develop the image because basically at this stage it doesn't look like anything has happened so how do you make it look like something has happened how do you reveal the chemical reactions that have actually happened well you bring another chemical to the boil and you hold your plate over that chemical and another chemical reaction happens now unfortunately the other chemical in question that you have to have vapors of that you're breathing in remember is mercury um, which drove early photographers literally mad. So that's somewhat of a drawback. Now, the... Okay, so you, you, you hold it over the mercury vapours, it fixes the image, it, it both develops and fixes the image, and hey presto, you now have an image which is permanent. It's very delicate, so generally it would have been presented behind glass. But um, actually, you also to wash it to remove any remaining silver iodide with a, a chemical wash. So basically, the mercury vapors reveal the image. You then use a chemical wash to get rid of any lingering silver iodide. And then you put the sheet of metal, which is the same sheet of metal you started with, right? Your silver plated copper sheet. You put it behind a sheet of glass, frame it, and hand, you know, hey presto, you're done. So this is a direct positive process, as we call it. The sheet of metal you started with is the sheet of metal in the picture frame at the end. So this is unreproducible. There is only, you know, you start off with one input and you get one output and that is that. Fox Hallbutt was infinitely reproducible, but there is a swing to this roundabout. Um, effectively, the 
grain size or the level of detail theoretically possible if you had a perfect lens would be the size of a molecule of silver iodide. In other words, these things are spectacularly detailed, but not reproducible. So at this stage, we kind of have, between the two processes, we kind of have everything we want, but we don't quite have it all in one. So 1839, Daguerre, he's literally a salesman by profession. Well, not a salesman. He, um, I think he did dioramas. But anyway, he's a showman. That's the word I was looking for. He's a showman by profession. So he made quite the show. And the streets of Paris were thronged with people trying to get to the shop window to look at his photographs and stuff. He, he really knew how to sell. And news obviously made it back to the UK where Foxhall was like, ah, sugar, he beat me to the punch. But anyway... You know, having him beaten to the punch, there's no point in hiding his light under a bushel. So also in 1839, Fox Talbot goes public with his current state of play. He calls it photogenic drawing. Uh, and like we say, it's much less detailed than Daguerre's work. And also Talbot's exposure times are much, much longer than Daguerre. So Daguerre has it down to a few minutes, Talbot's are many more minutes. But Talbot also doesn't stop in 1839. He continues perfecting his process. So in 1841, Fox Talbot announces an improved version of his process, which is basically a finished version, really. He probably shouldn't have announced anything in 1839. But hey, you've got to do it when your opponent comes out, I guess. Anyway, in 1841, Talbot announces the, the perfected version of his process, which he names the Callow type, and it has also been called the Talbot type. And the big change between 1839 and 1841 is that Fox Talbot has got his exposure times down, so he's now in the game. So, if we stop, or if we pause to take stock, we've now arrived where, you know, the things we want from a photographic process are short exposure times, highly detailed images that are infinitely reproducible. And right now we're in that annoying situation where you can have any two, but you can't have all three. So both of them have, you know, the two players in the game have your reasonably short, acceptably short, not short by modern standards, but acceptably short exposure times. But then you have to choose, do I want a detailed image or... Do I want a reproducible image? You can't have a detailed and a reproducible image. So the next big quest... So photography has been invented, but we're not done because the next big quest is to try have our cake and eat it. To try have a highly detailed, infinitely reproducible image. So the ne- actually, if you're thinking about it, so Fox Talbot has this sensitised paper that he's shining light through to make his contact-printed positives from his negatives. Well, what's more see-through than paper? Glass. So the next big step forward was when Bo... Basically, again, simultaneous invention here, right? So you're people working separately, but on the same problem coming to the same answer, because really, photography was an invention that was just dying to be invented. So anyway, 1851, so only a little bit over a decade, so 12 years into photography's history, we move away from the problematic uh, stuff that we had with Fox Talbot, and we now have 1851, Frederick Scott Archer and Gustave Le Gray simultaneously but independently develop, if you'll excuse the pun, what we come to know as the wet plate collodion process. So this involved coating a sheet of glass with a cocktail of chemicals that included silver halides. It's not just a single silver halide anymore, right? So from now on, no more me talking chemistry because it gets way too complicated. Hand-waving, you know, silver halides. So you 
coat this glass sheet in this cocktail of chemicals that are based on silver halides. You then expose it to light and develop it with another cocktail of chemicals. And the catch is you have to do all of it before it dries. Hence the name wet plate collodion. So the chemical mixture was referred to as an emulsion. So you would make your emulsion in a, in a dark room, smear it onto a glass sheet, keep your glass sheet away from the glass, run over to your camera, stick it into your camera, take your exposure, take it out of the camera, run back into the dark room and apply the second batch of chemicals to effectively press the brakes to stop the thing, to fix the image, to stop it being light sensitive. What you end up with then is a sheet of glass with a highly detailed image on it, which you can then contact print. So again, you shine light through the glass onto a piece of photosensitive paper. So we have the photosensitive paper already. That's how Fox Talbot was doing things. And you can do that over and over and over again. So you can make multiple prints from a single sheet of glass. So we've come a long way here. Now, the wet plate collodion is a philosophical successor to Fox Talbot's negative to positive process. But direct positive images don't actually die. So yes, we now have the ability to have our cake and eat it, to have an infinitely reproducible, highly detailed image. But there's still a demand for more modern variants of the daguerreotype, direct positive images, because you can make those way, 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 way cheaper. So you have these travelling portrait guys going around you know, particularly around the West in America, actually, and during the Civil War, going around soldier camps, where they would take a cheap photograph that the soldiers could send to their family at home. These were direct positives, and the intention here was to be as dirty cheap as possible, which is why you had these direct positive processes existing. And in particular, actually, the same chemistry that made wet plate collodion work could be used to make direct positives, and they came in two forms, so-called ambrotypes and tintypes. So they're basically the modern variants of the garyotype, and arguably you could say they're the ancient ancestors of the Polaroid. Right, so we now have the ability to make direct positive images and negative positive infinitely reproducible images, all with really high detail. So we're done, right? That's it. Photography is invented. 1851, we're all finished. No. Now that we can do all of this, of course, we want to do things better because... Do you know something? This process works and it gives us really nice images, but it's actually quite clunky. So we still have problems to be solved. So what's wrong? Well, if it if you have to do all of your work within 15 minutes, you can't really prepare your stuff, hike out to the wild, wild west, take a picture, hike home, and then produce your picture, right? If you want to take beautiful nature shots of El Capitan and all these amazing American landmarks, you don't just have to bring your camera. You have to bring your darkroom. Yes, the early image, the early nature photography in America was taken by people who, on the back of a mule, were carrying a darkroom tent. A portable, collapsible darkroom. So they would spend weeks trekking out to, you know, the middle of nowhere, if you'll excuse the expression unpack the stuff from their mule, set up a little mobile tent when they found somewhere pretty they wanted to photograph, set up a mobile darkroom, do a whole bunch of chemistry, 
run outside, stick the sensitized plate into the camera, take the picture of the beautiful mountain, the beautiful forest, the beautiful river, the waterfall, whatever it is, then run back into the tent to develop the image, and then they have a glass plate. Now, that glass plate is... um, Well, we haven't figured out any sort of way of enlarging yet. So if you want a big photo, you need a big glass plate. So they're clunky and annoying, so you then got to trek all the way back. So after you've done all your trekking with your mobile darkroom, you now have all of these big slabs of fragile glass that you need to get back home to your studio in San Francisco or whatever before you can start your printing. So that's not great. Um, you know, having your prints have to be the same size as the negative is annoying because always people like big pictures. We've always liked them big. And that, that was true in the early days. The true now is you have these massive, you know, 40-inch glass plates and stuff been carried around on mule back. Very impractical. Uh, the other problem is that the collodion emulsions they were they are sensitive to light. Hence they allow photography. But they don't treat all light the same. They are not what we would now call panchromatic. They are very, very sensitive to blue light and not really that sensitive to red and green. So if you wander out into your average nature scene, if you expose so that the sky is properly exposed, then the green forest below will be deeply underexposed. And if you expose for the nice green forest, the sky will be completely blown out. And that's generally what they did. So we have all of these blank skies in early photography. It's not that it was always overcast and really monotone. It was that the blue was just blown out because they didn't have panchromatic film. Or, sorry, panchromatic emulsion. They didn't film. <laughs> ages away from film yet and of course all the commonly available processes are black and white now as we'll learn in a little bit surprisingly enough actually there was already experimentation in colour photography going on this early in the process it was just the experiments weren't really going anywhere but they were experimenting anyway so we'll come back to colour later so physically impractical because of large negatives and having to do everything within 15 minutes not panchromatic, so can't get a proper landscape. You know, you can have the land or you can have the sky, pick one. And all monochrome. So, of all of those problems, the monochrome people seem to be perfectly happy to live with. But the lack of portability made people very cranky. So the next big phase in photography, really, or at least in my telling of photography, the next theme I've picked out is going portable. So the first big step forward comes in 1871 when Richard Mannox removed the need for the portable darkroom when he invented a new gelatin-based emulsion that you could layer on the glass and it would basically keep indefinitely. So you still had giant glass plates because the only way to make them was to contact print them. So if you wanted a 40-foot, sorry, not a 40-foot, Jesus. If you wanted a 40-inch final picture, you needed a 40-inch glass plate. So you still needed these massive glass plates to carry out into the out, you know, into the middle of nowhere to take your nature photography. But you could do all of your chemistry before you left. So you prepare all of your plates, you then pack your meal, you poodle off for a couple of weeks, take your pictures, poodle back to the comfort of your studio, and then develop them. So because this chemistry didn't need to be wet, it was unsurprisingly called the dry glass plate process or dry glass plate photography still bulky still brittle but hey we're moving forward so that was 1871 move forward decade and a half a little bit more we get to around about 1887 1888 um and at that stage again we had stuff happening in parallel 
we had a co- multiple, at least two different glass plate manufacturers who had the idea, why are we sticking this gelatin onto something rigid and fragile and brittle? Right? The rigid, fragile and brittle is not needed. What's needed is transparent. Do we have something flexible, light and transparent that's not brittle? Well, Eastman Kodak and a factory in the UK came up with the same idea. Why don't we use celluloid instead of glass? Hey presto, we have the birth of photographic film. Uh, So the gelatin gave us the end of the need for the, you know, the need for keeping stuff wet. The gelatin gave us the end of the fragile glass plate and the invention of film. But gelatin or rather the gelatin-based emulsions, weren't done giving gifts. Um, these new emulsions that were on this gelatin base, so again, sil- silver halides mixed with gelatin to make these gelatin emulsions, they were much more light-sensitive than the old wet plate process. So much more light-sensitive that if you coated paper with this stuff, you would then create photographic paper that was light-sensitive enough that you could project your negative onto it through a lens. And so instead of it being a contact print where you put the, pho- this, the photographic paper directly in contact with the negative and then shine light through, you could put an air gap in between and a lens in between, a magnifying lens to be specific. You could enlarge, is what I'm saying in a very roundabout way. The enlarger became possible. So by the late 1880s, Regular folk could use a small piece of gelatin film, sorry, celluloid film with gelatin emulsion on it, and make large images by projecting through the negative, through a lens, onto a large sheet of gelatin-based photosensitive paper. Now we really are going places. Now... You know, we, this is starting to look really recognisable as photography. So the first commercially available panchromatic film was then also... So 1880s, we have our photographic papers, so we now have enlargers. 25 years later, the final of... The, well, not the very final, but the, another really big problem is solved. The first commercially available panchromatic film hits the market in 1906. So in 1906, we have... Flexible, not fragile photographic film that can be small and yet make big images. It's panchromatic, so it's equal sensitivity to all the different colours of light. It's, you know, portable, you don't have to do it within 15 minutes. We basically have the basis of the 35mm camera and the spectacular boom in photography made possible, to be honest, a lot by companies like Kodak who made cameras that were really human-friendly. Uh, their catchphrase was, you push the button, we'll do the rest. And that was true. And, you know, really, at this stage, you could say photography is truly born, right? So as we go from the 1800s into the 1900s, we really are into recognisable, point-and-shoot, human-friendly photography. So the era where you didn't need to be a chemist, you didn't need to be a complete nerd. You could be, you know a banker by day and a photographer at the weekend. You could be a nanny by day and a photographer by night. You, you know, Anyone could take pictures. Anyone could be a photographer. So that's where we stand in 1906. Now, 
celluloid film was brilliant, right? Really, really good stuff. But it did have a teensy-weensy problem is that it was somewhat, um, well, explosive. Or at the very least flammable. But it was sort of made of gun cotton. So that really wasn't very good. So the last sort of big change to come is that the celluloid was replaced first with acetate and later with polyester. So if you wander down to a store now and buy a roll of film for your retro camera, it's polyester. It's not going to catch fire. Um, and acetate film sort of had a nasty habit of degrading. It was never quite as good as celluloid film. Um, anyway, polyester does the trick. So at this stage, we have modern photography with one minor exception. I still haven't mentioned colour. Okay, so let's talk about colour. So 1906, black and white photography in its modern form has basically arrived and we're in for a century where everyone's taking pictures and it's great. Well, colour wasn't there for the first couple of decades, really. I mean, it's not until the 1930s that we start to see regular colour photographs, but actually the first commercially available colour photographic process was released just a year after 1906, in 1907. It was by a company you might have heard of called Kodak, and uh, it was a process known as autochrome. But it was quite the throwback, because autochrome did produce colour images, but it wasn't film-based. Of all things, it was based on sheets of glass. Yeah, okay, we get to have colour images, but we get to go right back in time, back to glass plates. Okay, so it was definitely of interest to artists, and it was definitely used, and it was sold as a product. I mean, it wasn't hypothetical, it was real. But nonetheless, it's not the... You know, it's not the the thing that your average person on the street was able to use. That didn't happen until 1935. And again, the people who brought colour photography to the masses were Kodak. Specifically, Kodachrome is the brand name they used for their for what was the first commercially successful colour film. So in 1935, Kodak brings colour film to the masses with Kodachrome. So how do we get to Kodachrome? Well... Let's look at that long history because it goes back a lot further than you might think. So 1839 is when Daguerre introduces photography to the world, makes it a thing the public know about and care about. So how long do you imagine it would be until the first person managed to capture a colour image? Well, the answer is less than a decade. 1848 is when Edmund Becquerel created the first colour photograph. It wasn't a very good one. It was, in fact, a terrible one. Um, I believe I've seen it described pretty much everywhere as a laboratory curiosity. It had only the teensiest of weensiest of hints of colour, and the process of making it was utterly impractical to actually use it to take real pictures in the real world. But nonetheless, 1848, someone had managed to make a colour photograph. Not bad. The next person who wanders into the story is famous scientist James Clerk Maxwell. And he demonstrated a process for making colour images in 1861. And the process involved taking three photographs of the same subject with red, green and blue filters and then projecting light through those three negatives and through filters again onto a screen, which would then recreate the colour. Now, 
this works, right? This is this is definitely a way of capturing color images. So you basically capture three monochrome images, one for all the red light, one for all the green light, one for all the blue light, and then put them back together again. You, of course, have to take your pictures without anything moving in between. It's a very fiddly process, but it works. Now, it also has to be projected. So you can have a slideshow with these kind of photographs, but you can't put them in a book. You can't hang them on your wall. You can't print them. You can only see them projected. The next person to walk into our story, remember 1861 though, so that's pretty darn early. Uh, so the next person who walks in is Louis Ducard du Huron, who presented, who patented, sorry, a process for printing colour images in 1868. Again though, suffered from the same problem that Becquerel had. Yeah, worked in theory, utterly impractical in the real world. So... 1891 is when we really start to go places with Gabriel Lippmann, who published a process for creating colour images in 1891. And in fact, it was extremely good because uh, it earned him a little something called the Nobel Prize in 1908. Now, his process was difficult, complex, and massively ahead of its time because the output is much more analogous to a hologram than it is to a photograph. The result was a glass plate that you had to backlight to be able to view it, but it effectively captured the shape of the light wave fronts in the glass, which is really what a hologram does. So you couldn't print it, you couldn't hang it on your wall, you could hang it on your wall uh, with a light box behind it, I guess. So it's not a photograph in anything like what we think of now, but extremely ahead of its time, extremely cool. So that's 1891. And that then is what leads us to autochrome in 1907 and kodachrome in 1935. Okay, so that is colour photography. So really 1935 is when when we go colour and we, of course, haven't gone back since. Something else I just want to mention is that there has been, or there was, it's kind of gone out of fashion again, um, but before the digital age, sort of in the last dying days of the film age, there was a, la- a massively popular last hurrah for the direct positive image, the not reproducible, one-off, the garotype, ambrotype, tintype style image. I am, of course, talking about the instant photograph, better known by its brand name, Polaroid. So the first instant films were developed in uh, by Edward H. Land in 1947, and it was a monochrome film which had a sepia tone. The first camera to make use of this film was the Polaroid 95, which was released in 1948. And Polaroid remained monochrome until 1963, when Polaroid introduced Polacolor, which is a colour version of their instant camera. And the Polaroid continued to be very popular through the you know the rest of the 60s, 70s, 80s, and then it sort of died away. So that was the last hurrah for your direct positive image. And no history of how we've gone around sensing light could possibly be complete without having a little bit of a look back at how we went digital, because, right, today we have arguably actually less detailed images because pixels are much bigger than molecules, so actually our modern images are arguably less high resolution than a daguerreotype. But they are definitely infinitely reproducible, although almost no one ever bothers reproducing them in the real world. We tend to keep them all virtual. Anyway, digital is where it's at these days, and it's what's really, really democratised photography. You might be surprised to hear 
that the earliest digital image sensor was invented by Peter Noble in 1967. It had a whopping 100 pixels in total. Not 100 pixels on one side. I mean 100 pixels in total. It was a 10 by 10 pixel grid. Still though, 1967. Not bad. 1972, Noble had uh, taken his idea, progressed, and he was now producing 64 pixel by 64 pixel sensors. Which isn't bad. A year later, Fairchild Semiconductor, so 1973, Fairchild Semiconductor released the first 100 pixel by 100 pixel CCD chip. So we now have a major manufacturer and a 100 pixel by 100, 100 pixel CCD chip. So that's arguably that's the real birth of digital photography is that first CCD from Fairchild Semiconductor. 1975, um, Kodak invent a matrix of film of filters, excuse me, called the Bayer filter, which is a system still used a lot today, which basically alternates different pixels between red, green and blue, but it does it in a very specific pattern so the end result doesn't have banding and all sorts of nasty interference effects. It's called a Bayer filter, and so 1975 was when Kodak invented that, which gives us colour digital images for the first time. So Fairchild's and Noble's sensors are monochrome, just how much light hit it, and then when Kodak invented the Bayer filter, we get colour CCD images. 1986, then, Kodak gave us another really big breakthrough, the first megapixel sensor. So 1986, we hit one megapixel. Not long after that, Adobe released the first version of Photoshop, 1990. So we have Photoshop long before we have regularly available digital cameras. Then 1993 to 1995, a little place you might have heard of called NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory developed and perfected the CMOS sensor. So we have CCDs and CMOS, there are two modern sensor types. And then in 1995, two companies you may have heard of called Kodak and Apple released the first consumer digital cameras. Followed in 1996 by Kodak, Fuji, Agfa and Konica getting together to produce APS, which is sort of the first of our big system digital cameras. And, you know, that's where I'm going to draw a line under history. I think we're into current affairs at that stage. So there is a potted history of sensing light. Again, detailed show notes at lets-talk.ie, including links and stuff. Um, Lots of all the dates in here. So I'm hoping this will be a useful reference to come back to uh, as we talk more about photography. So there we go, lightning tour of photography. As I say, if you're going to lets-talk.ie to look at the show notes, while you're there, you'll notice that there's large blue buttons under the heading support the show. I would really appreciate it if people would do so. And I really appreciate all the people who have and continue to do so. And really, there are so many ways you can help, and I appreciate all of them. So this this show is not supported by advertisers. This show is supported by you guys. And if you guys didn't support the show, there would be no show, because, to be perfectly frank, things are tough at the moment. If this podcast wasn't paying for itself, it wouldn't exist, because I can't afford to pay for anything right now. So everyone who helps out, thank you so much. It's because of you there is a show. Now, helping out doesn't have to involve money, right? Because a podcast without listeners is like one of those trees in the woods that no one hears falling. Did it really fall or did it make a sound? Whatever that cliche is. So just telling your friends about the show, tweeting about the show, reviewing the show on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice, all of that really helps the show. So, you know, if you you want to help, but you're in a similar position to me where money is tight, just spread the word. It is really appreciated. You can also 
help the show by helping yourself in a couple of different ways. So the easiest way to help the show is, I guess, just a straightforward one-off PayPal donation, right? That's the simplest thing. You basically tell PayPal, give Bart some money, Bart gets some money, all is well. Uh, probably the most effective way to financially help the show is Patreon, because it's a small amount that you pledge per show, but it comes in every month, and it's you know, bills come in every month, Patreon money comes in every month, take one, apply to the other, it's great. Um, but there are other ways you can help your, you help me by helping yourself. If you happen to be the nerdy type who needs cloud hosting or domain name registration. So there is a hover.com link, or affiliate link, and a DigitalOcean affiliate link. And if you use those links to buy products, then I get a commission from either of those companies. And that's really helpful because that helps offset my hosting bills and stuff. Okay, I'm going to start prattling on. Remember, let's slash talk.e for the detailed show notes. I hope you enjoyed the show. And until next time, happy snapping. You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hey Siri, could you read the Three Geeky Ladies promo script? Sure. Elisa says, Welcome to the Three Geeky Ladies podcast and introduces Suse and Vicky. Suse says, Hello everyone. Vicky says, Hi. Elisa, want to know how we feel about the new Apple product? Suse, what about the iOS camera, Vicky, or the MacBook Pro update? Elisa, Suse, and Vicky in unison. Then, listen to the Three Geeky Ladies podcast, Siri, the Three Geeky Ladies podcast on the My Mac Podcasting Network. Woo!